You're listening to Flipping Tables on Sunrise Robot. Find out how you can support us at sunriserobot.net slash support. Hey, welcome to Flipping Tables. This is episode 75, and unfortunately, I think... My, should we do this the sad thing first? Should we, do you want to do the sad thing? <laughs> yeah, we can do the sad thing. I, I want it because I feel like there's a lot of interesting, uh, interesting topics on the rundown, but this this cannot go undiscussed. So br- bring bring us up to speed. Yeah, so I, I just learned tonight, and, and all of Twitter is now aware that Nintendo's president Satoru Iwata has died at age 55, and it appears to be. I, I read it was a tumor, so probably cancer and uh i I know we're bleeping things out but cancer and uh yeah no cancer is good i'm tempted to just leave that but yeah and this is i you know i have to say like the second i saw this because you you know you shared it with me and i started looking into it a little more um you know they were trying to be respectful and they were very vague just that he had died not details and uh my immediate suspicion was like Ooh, Japanese businessman, super high-profile company. I wonder if he had like a heart attack or a stroke, because there's all these terrible stories about these these guys who mostly guys, maybe some women, but mostly you know younger Japanese men who work like hundred-hour weeks and they have all this pressure from you know society to be super successful and and all these expectations placed on them. And then I was like, oh no, it's the one thing that would be even sadder, which it was completely outside of his control. And, you know, it's just like a genetic, like, I don't think he was like a chain smoker or something. He doesn't look, <laughs> yeah. he look like the type. I, you know, this was just, he drew a really shitty lot. It's terrible. Yeah. So I thought we could take a moment to celebrate some of his contributions. And he's been with Nintendo forever. He's been their president since 2002. And uh, he, he's been involved in, uh, so he got involved in the early 80s with Hal's lab. HAL Laboratories, and uh, they they work closely with Nintendo. I don't know if they've ever actually been technically owned by Nintendo, but it's one of those, like, basically they're owned by Nintendo things. And uh, so he helped create the games Balloon Fight, Kirby, Earthbound. Later he worked on Pokemon Gold and Silver. And then, as we all know, he became president in the early 2000s after Yamachi passed. And uh, he's kind of uh, shepherded the, the Game Boy Color to Game Boy Advance to DS, and also the GameCube to Wii, which whatever you think of the Wii, it was one of the most uh, marketplace successful things Nintendo's done in a long time. But I think I especially just want to take a moment and talk about Earthbound, um, just because that's a kind of a special game, I think, in Nintendo's list of already special games. And uh, I, I know you've played the game, and if you had any thoughts on it, but one of the things I would say I love about Earthbound is that it's it's just such a weird, quirky, wonderful game. And uh, one of the things I love the most about it is that the star of the game is a regular kid, a kid with parents who's in a house that has a telephone and a dog. Yeah, his, and, like, his weapon is a baseball bat. He wears a striped shirt. Yeah, like, and a like, kid. Yeah, you go into town and you eat hamburgers and there's a bully that you fight. and But then it's totally wacky and weird and there's aliens and all kinds of nonsense. But um, it's really kind of like a school kid's dream in the best way. Um, and so I just always kind of love that game. Well, in the so in, in Japan, it was the Mother series. 
And, you know, there was Mother, which was on Nintendo, which never came to America. And then Mother 2 was a Super Nintendo game, which did come to America under the title Earthbound. And then Mother 3 was a Game Boy Advance game. And I feel like this is a very Nintendo thing. Like, what if we just jumped to different consoles for our sequels? (laughs) But but, uh, Mother 3, I actually, I'd heard so much about it. And just that the company flatly said, like, we're never going to bring it to America. Super sorry, guys. And I loved Earthbound. Like, I played it as a kid. I played it again as a teenager. I played it again as an adult, like, in throughout college. Like, it's just, it's a super awesome game. And definitely some of it is nostalgia goggles, but it, it's just a good game. Like, you can't, you may not like it because it's a super quirky universe and a weird sense of humor, but it's, it is a highly polished, quirky, weird thing. And uh, Mother 3, some a bunch of like super dedicated people in the, the fan community made a ROM patch to localize it into English. And I think a few other languages, but definitely into English. So uh, I finally got to play it, and it's like it's so much like darker, and the, the themes are a lot more um, kind of like heavy and in your face. And then when I thought back to Earthbound, like if you read about all the stuff that's underneath the quirkiness in earthbound it's actually like this incredibly heavy serious game and that's just kind of i don't know like i feel like that's a little bit the path nintendo's taken is it's like serious themes but wrapped in like such a colorful wrapping paper that you're sort of like i don't have to take this seriously if i don't want to like pokemon is about monsters beating each other to death or it's about pikachu (laughs) it's like pixar they're kind of hit that nerve too yeah which i mean it's that whole like you know the there were a lot of cartoons in the 90s that were famous for being enjoyable for children and the parents that had to watch them with their children (laughs) and i mean i you know if you can enjoy earthbound as a 10 year old and a 20 year old and a 30 year old like that's a pretty a pretty deep you know, story where there's elements that each time you go back to it, you're like, oh, when I was 15, I didn't realize that that thing was happening. And I mean, like Kirby is another huge franchise. I wouldn't say it's quite as deep and robust as uh, as the Earthbound or the Mother series. But I mean, it's still like that was a huge contribution to gaming. Yeah. And uh, one of my other favorite Earthbound tidbits is uh, the little trolling for people who pirated the game. is It's very subtle. Well, until it happens. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> is, uh, it doesn't, there's no apparent problem. You can play through the entire game, and then when you get to the end of the game, it just goes, just kidding, erases your game, and it just shuts down. Well, and it's so perfect for that game, too, because... You know, if you remember what it was like having to like switch to channel three to play your Super Nintendo, like back in the old days, like you actually, uh, you would get static sometimes, like if the, the connectors weren't all the way in. And when Earthbound started, like the logo came up and then, you know, the little Nintendo logo came up and then it showed like static and it then it faded into the actual intro to the game like this sort of cover art thing about the aliens destroying the world. Then it went to the actual intro, which was like colorful and happy and everything seemed fine. (laughs) But like from, you know, the first 10 seconds of the game, you're used to the game showing you like static and behaving oddly. And then there's times throughout where like the whole screen goes black. There's nothing on the screen. There's no sound except like a few words that pop up after several seconds of dark silence. (laughs) So at the end for them to be like, 
you're fighting the final, you know, form four of the final boss. Like, this is his final form. And then it just, like, cuts to black, game resets. And you know that there are people the world over who are like, man, this game is so awesome. Like, they totally had me going. Oh, God, where's my save file? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So another little note about Iwata is uh, if you go to his IMDB page, you can see he's produced 117 games. And not not like he's the only producer, but um, he's just one of those guys that's kind of had his hands as a a player in so much beyond the games we've mentioned. And even though he's not always been like the primary director on these games, he's kind of, I mean, I remember hearing great stories about how even as CEO, like when they were behind on getting like a certain game release, he would be willing to go and help program and bug fix and just get in the trenches because he's a computer scientist at heart. He's a gamer at heart. I have a great quote I can say when we round this up, Um, but that he was that kind of guy that's kind of run every part of the company and kind of just helps make it happen. Yeah, and you know something I didn't realize until this very sad story broke is, and I'm gonna I'll throw a link to this in the the show notes if you want to see it for yourself. But if you Google the phrase Nintendo presidents, you get one of those little uh, like knowledge boxes, you know, that just pops up with the answer to your question. There have been in the company's entire history. This company was founded in 1889. <laughs> there have been four presidents. <laughs> And he, I mean, obviously he died very early and tragically, but I mean, his was was the shortest run at like, what, if he started in 2002, years. so 13 years? Yeah, that's awesome. Like, that's that's a long, and it's not like he was shamed out or he's going to be remembered for all these terrible things. Like, he probably would have had many, many more successful years if, if this tragedy hadn't happened. So it's just like, man, that is a company that it really, really supports the people it promotes. Absolutely. Um, so this quote I want to mention, um, maybe to round this out, this, this sad departure, but appreciation, is uh, he said this in 2005 at the Game Developers Conference. He said, on my business card, I'm a corporate president. In my mind, I am a game developer, but in my heart, I am a gamer. So as a fellow gamer, that just melts me down. That's wonderful. Yeah, I've, I'm sure over the next you know like days and weeks, we'll be seeing all kinds of stuff. But that that was like... Uh, I hope everybody's like homages to him center around that. Like that's how he saw himself. So that's how we should, you know, respect yeah. him in, in postmortem. It's uh, really sad. Yeah. So break out your copy of Earthbound or Pokemon and, and or even just Mario Kart and, and uh, celebrate the, the life of a great man. Um, shall we get to our follow-up? Yeah, we shall. So there, that was the, the very sad part of the episode over. I do hope... Uh, I do hope we didn't bum anybody out too much, but it happened. It had to be discussed. So uh, one of our our listeners did actually reach out because uh, I had mentioned um, we were talking about you know the Kindle and its awesomeness, and you said, "Does Sony even make their reader anymore?" Well, <laughs> turns out not only is the answer to that no, but it's been no for like over a year and a half. Um, they killed it in like super early 2014, but. Uh, and this, I'm I'm surprised I don't remember hearing about this, but they actually did the right thing, or the the right thing by their their users, and they uh, formed a partnership with Kobo and transferred everybody's reader books to Kobo books, 
so that you still had access to anything you'd purchased. All Sony, like Xperia phones and t- devices, I mean, I know they're not killing it in the Android market, but they had an agreement that their devices would ship with uh, the Kobo software so that you could immediately you know, pick up right where you left off and make the transition as smooth as possible. And apparently they also did that with Spotify uh, when they killed their Sony Unlimited Music 2000 plus plus whatever terrible name it had. <laughs> when they shut that down, they just said, okay, however much time you had left on our service, we're going to give it to you in Spotify time. And then if you don't like Spotify, you can cancel Spotify, but don't say we took away your money and your music. And that's, you know, I mean, they don't have to do that. Like, I'm sure somewhere in the terms of service, it says at any minute they could pull the plug and just back out of the room with a bag of money in one hand and a middle finger up in the air with the other hand. And and they would be (laughs) legally allowed to do that. But they're they didn't do that. So I think that's that's pretty cool of them. Absolutely. Though the the one weird nitpicky thing, which apparently I'm just a horrible person about people naming things, but even though it is in every way, in every measure, Spotify on PlayStation, um, they call it PlayStation Music. And I'm just like, just call it Spotify. (laughs) It's what it is. Yeah, and that actually, I'm surprised Spotify would be okay with that. Like having their logo with a different name. They're just music as a service? (laughs) I guess. Maybe Mass. maybe that's what they're going to do. They're just going to power everybody else's music service. <laughs> yeah. Um, this isn't exactly follow-up, but I have a little uh, getting ready for this episode meta topic for a minute here. And that's, uh, so I'm on the run. I, I'm in between jobs. Not at, I mean, I have a job. I'm starting it on Tuesday, which no, is when this gets You're published. a hobo. We get it. <laughs> and so I don't have my own laptop, so I'm on my wife's Surface and that's not really that important. Um, but uh, to get ready for this episode, we do our call over Skype, and we've experimented with some WebRTC and some other options. But for now, we're sticking with Skype. And uh, on the Surface, um, it comes with a version of Skype pre-installed. It's a it's a modern app. It's in the the tablety side of Windows. And so I was like, whatever, I'll sign into it. And it said, there's a new Skype for desktop experience that you should install. So I was like, fine, I want the most updated one, whatever it is. So I install it, and it's just got like full-on Adobe or, or whoever else you would point out as having horrible installers. Um, there's at least two different pages with auto-checked things you don't want you have to uncheck. And um, Skype is a service that can cost money. Like, it seems really crappy to have bundleware with software that may end up charging me money to use it. Yeah. It's also Microsoft owns them, and you think they would, like, care a little more about the user experience of getting... Uh, we don't have to open up that can of worms. <laughs> but anyway, I was annoyed that, you know, Skype owned by Microsoft, who should who knows better and should do better... Um, is pre-checking things that I don't want, like newsletters and um, other system settings that, you know, installing companion things. Um, Stop it. I I think the other two were Bing as the default search provider. No. No one (laughs) has uh, ever wanted that box checked, ever. And and no one's wanted that, and even fewer people have wanted MSN as their homepage. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) It's just painful. There's my little table flip, and we don't we don't have to beat the horse, but I had to complain. Yeah, and I actually I did have a uh, an, an auto follow up as well. 
Um, so I've been, I talked about those Ikea charging pads, right? You know, you like, you can drill it in your desk or you can leave it up there like a little cool coaster or whatever. So for about two, two and a half weeks now, I have my two primary devices other than my laptop are, you know, my watch and my phone. Cause I actually only use my tablet mostly for work stuff. So if I'm not traveling, then I don't need to use it that much. And, uh, I am now just like with with thumbprint to unlock. I am now fully on board with uh, wireless charging. Um, every time I have to plug <laughs> my iPad or my laptop in, I'm like, "This is so hard." <laughs> and it's just especially because when I first tried the wireless charging with my phone, like it takes just a second to let you know that it's connecting. I mean, it obviously can't be as as fast and sudden as a uh, a cable would be. But it charges pretty fast. It's not bad. And the battery in a smartwatch is so small that even over wireless charging, it actually charges full in like 30 minutes. It's super fast. Um, yeah. And so I just heard recently, and I, I'll try and find the article that that mentions this. So it might be in the show notes. You'll have to check and find out at sunriserobot.net slash flipping tables slash 75 or in your podcatcher. But... Supposedly, somebody is getting ready to come out with a wireless charger that operates at up to 15 watts, which is <laughs> damn near fast enough to power a laptop. Like, we're getting so close to my dream of just putting the laptop down. Yeah, are most phone chargers like 5 watts? Oh, yeah. 15, 15 watts by mobile standards is considered uh, what what is referred to as turbocharging. I don't know if like one company owns that term or not, but... Uh, like mo- I think Motorola and, and and Android devices call it turbocharging. So, you know, instead of your phone charging uh, at, it'll take three hours. It can be eighty percent charged in like thirty minutes, and then it slows down the last bit so that it doesn't destroy the shelf life of the battery. And uh, I don't. I'm just. I can't freaking wait. Like I just. I just want my desk to power my devices by virtue of my devices being on my desk. <laughs> absolutely bring it on anyway we can get into the actual uh the actual thing proper here and uh i wanted to t- to talk to you about this because we've talked you and i have talked a lot about security this uh this google photos and the unguessable url so basically um did you get a chance to look at this yeah i'm fascinated by this i think it's amazing so when you and I had no idea this worked this way because I've been using Google Photos and it's all very seamless and and does not appear to behave differently. But apparently, what they're doing is the photo is not publicly accessible until the moment you right click on it to grab the URL. It's like some quantum entanglement. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's like this photo did not exist on the open web until you believed that it existed. <laughs> So, and the URL is this giant, like, hideous, hashed, random bunch of crazy juju, and they're not sequential, they're not predictable in any way, it doesn't, it's not obvious how it was generated, I'm sure it's, I mean, they have a lot of brilliant engineers, I'm sure it's something super, super complicated to make this 80 character bit of nonsense, but the question that was raised was, is this a secure way to share a photo? Because couldn't you just start guessing at random URLs until you <laughs> hit somebody's photo? And the short answer is yeah, 
But the long answer is no, not really, yeah. because it's something I can't remember in this Verge article if they have an actual number, but there's there's some Yeah, duo vigintillions. <laughs> is that a real number? That's not <laughs> I don't that's never not, heard. That's not like a funny Sesame Street number. <laughs> never counted that high. But so the yeah, there's a number of factors why this is actually secure. Um number one, like you said, the URLs don't exist oh, wait, until I'm, I'm the sorry, user. I have to cut you them. off. Uh, the Verge did the right thing and actually linked to an article about that word <laughs> to prove <laughs> that it's a real number. It's uh, 10 to the 69th power. Yeah, so <laughs> I think the, the way to think about the URL is it's acting as a password. Um, I think they even say that in the article. It's the password into the photo. Right. And uh, that's why it's secure and also um, doesn't exist till the user asks for it and then it's not like it's it's the url is username slash hash number right um and so even if you manage to land on other photos there's no predictability whose photo or like it's not part of an album like the 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 off chance that you manage to land on another photo it's not like you're like well i'm you know i found one nude photo here's another one yeah yeah you couldn't like do a celebrity hack where you're like, ah, I found this one celebrity. Now I'll just increment this by one and go through all their photos. And the other thing is how quickly can Google go, oh, this guy's just trying to find photos and he's not really, nope, you're out or you're blocked. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, I think they say that in here is, is, you know, if somebody's just making thousands of calls from one IP address to the Google photo service, that's like, huh, we should probably stop him. And they keep missing. They keep landing on nothing. It's like, yeah, they're just trying to scrape. Yeah. Nope. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, at that point, it's kind of an arms race. Like, who can can Google stop scrapers faster than scrapers can mask themselves with different IPs? And- but they've made it such a low, not low-hanging fruit, the opposite. Like, the, the most <laughs> the highest worth, worthless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, because you, have no, you don't know what you're going to get. It's almost going to all be garbage, let alone you're never going to land on anything. So why, you're not going to try that approach. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems, and I, I hate to say this because it makes me sound like a total Google fanboy, but if they think this is secure, I'm kind of like, okay. Because one of the number one rules with security, if you've done any kind of development, uh, like web development or app development or anything, is don't invent your own security. So you leave yeah. you leave that up to security researchers and you let smart people invent cryptology and security and these tools you can use, and then you don't reinvent it. But the thing is, in this scenario, Google is that inventing authority that has all of the experts so I've never heard of this before. So this may be something that either is new or that they are popularizing for the first time. But in, in this analogy, they are the security expert that I, the layman, should be trusting. So, yeah. I mean, I know it's Google and there's always security concerns with Google. But they, you know, in terms of not letting people get to things they shouldn't get to, they've done pretty damn well. I mean, you have to imagine that their servers are just getting hammered by attackers 24 7 and not nobody's getting in nobody's getting away with huge amounts of google data yeah i've never really heard credible arguments that google is insecure it's it's always more business model stuff which we've hashed over way too many times i don't want to get into again (laughs) (laughs) i like that little uh 
It's more like what Google actually says it's doing that some people think is a bigger deal than other people do, but it's not the security. I think everyone's like, yeah, I think they they know what they're doing. Right. Yeah, so I mean, I'm I'm cool with this. And it's just it's one of those like googly kind of things to do. Like the uh there's a quote in this article. Let me see if I can Google has reverse engineered the right click, which is borderline clickbaity if your audience <laughs> if your audience is all nerds and thinks that those are that's enticing words to be in the, that order in a sentence but it's i mean they kind of you know like on on Google Drive when you right click you don't get like a normal browser set of options you get file based options like make a copy of this file or move this to another yeah. folder the kind of stuff But that's all well within the the desktop paradigm of what happens when you right click. That's exactly my point is it's what you would expect to happen in a file browser not in a web browser but because Google Drive is emulating a file browser that is the expected behavior. Like I don't want to see view source. I want to see make a copy of this file. So it it's it's yeah. behaving just the way you would expect and I feel like this you know I'm right-clicking on the image because I want to get the URL. So at the moment I do that, it makes it public, and then it gives me this super secure URL. My only contention with this, and I don't remember seeing this in the article, so tell me if I'm just stupid and don't remember it right, but I can't undo this. Like I, If I accidentally right-click on an image to get the URL, I can't unright-click on it, so now it's shared. Well, is there an option to explicitly say this is a private photo? Because presumably then it would kill the URL that was open. That I actually don't know because the majority of my interactions with photos is as a backup service and then linking to photos from places like emails and Google Plus. So it's not, I'm not in the photos tool that often. Well, if I wasn't on hotel Wi-Fi, I would actually try it, but I'm not going not gonna to risk it. Yeah, so I mean the the right click menu looks completely innocuous. Like it's just I'm I'm trying it right now. So I just I just right clicked on an innocuous photo that I wouldn't be upset about if it got out there. And huh, I just checked in an incognito window and it actually told me to piss off. Huh. Did you actually observe the URL? Yeah, I, I said or Did you just copy the link? Well, I said copy this link. So maybe view it in your browser, then try incognito. Oh, wait, here we go. So there's get shareable link. Okay, so now I have a big crazy link. And when I look at this big crazy link, it takes me to Google Photos. It's very slowly loading this giant photo. So yeah, it appears to work, but in the share menu, there's no... No, I was kidding. I didn't mean to share this. So, yeah, yeah. that I, I mean, it, it's possible the option's buried in there somewhere. but the, It has to be because, like, after you, I would think you would, I guess, short of deleting the photo, maybe that's your way out. But. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, generally speaking, I'm pretty darn comfortable with this, but I do understand why some people would be like, oh, I don't understand how it works, therefore it scares me. <laughs> Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Yep. But anyway, it's it's a cool, like, I'm glad that the smart people are doing stuff like this because sharing photos shouldn't really be that hard. But as photos yeah. get, like, crazier and crazier resolutions, they're actually starting to eclipse things like audio where you might have, like, a 20-meg uh, 
photo from a super high res camera in your pocket supercomputer. But but yeah. then when I want to share like a three meg audio file, it's like, oh no, that's hard. We don't know how to do that. And I'm like, it's just they're just bits. <laughs> just send them across the same wire you were sending the photo across. <laughs> yeah. And you can argue photos are still benefiting from larger file sizes even though megapixels is not a good reliable measure of quality but we can have a photo episode some other time <laughs> i keep saying like let's not talk about this let's not talk about this but <laughs> we have too many good topics it's okay you're just you're laser focused on the objective um i do want to talk about this live coding thing uh but but yes. i have uh, some real-time follow-up so did you hear about the big flash like zero day that happened a, d- a couple of days ago Yes, and since I'm between laptops, I was like, meh. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess you don't care. Yeah, you have an iPhone that can't even run Flash if you wanted to. But I, uh, so I actually have to use Flash a little bit for my job. So I, uh, I have a few tools that I have to interact with that require Flash. There's no HTML5 like upgrade or side grade or whatever. So I, I can't completely uninstall it. But what I did do is I turned on click to play because when I need to use those tools, the extra half second it will take me to run the tool once on that page is not a big deal. And you can actually even whitelist certain domains. So I can whitelist like my company's domain and then anything that's being fed from there will just run and it won't be a huge deal. But in the the day and a half since I turned on click to play, <laughs> web pages load so fast, Michael. So fast. I had no idea the percentage of ads that were flash. Yeah. And like, it's not like you don't see ads. They just like, they just default to something else because you don't have flash. No, that's the cool part. A lot of them are now just little gray boxes. (laughs) Like on Hulu is a good example. So Hulu uses flash. Um, I'll actually, I'll link to a tweet they sent me. Because I I complained on Twitter about them using flash. And they responded with a gif of... uh, it's so the the tweet body says we'll send your feedback to the right people and then there's a gif of Peter Griffin throwing his laptop into the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> so a little hostile. <laughs> well, I just I was like I kind of turned to Susan when that happened because we were sitting together on the couch and I was like these people don't know I have a good sense of humor like I think this is hilarious but this seemed like a little bit of a risk on their part. And so I responded and I was like, wow, I was surprised you did that. And they were like, apparently they have an entire Hulu website of GIFs made from Hulu shows. So I think that's what they do is they, they swing for the fences. And then if you think it's funny, they're like, oh, check out our Hulu GIF website. <laughs> but anyway, um, on Hulu, a bunch of those little like if you're viewing a video uh, on the bottom part of the page, there's a like a huge grid of like, now go watch this. Hey, check out that other thing. What about this thing? And a bunch of those are not static images. They're flash ads. So I queued up this Hulu page and there's just like these gray boxes everywhere. It looked like the emo version of the Windows 8 Metro interface. It was just all like, oh. <laughs> you need the Buzz and Woody gray boxes everywhere meme. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, I'm going to make one of those now and throw it in the show notes. But anyway, this live coding thing. So I'm, I have the page up in front of me, and there's a big sad gray box where where the video would be playing. But what do you? Well, tell tell me about how you found this. 
I can't remember how I found it. I just found it. <laughs> it came to me in a dream, and I forgot it. Either it was dream. on... Was it it might have been a, a retweet of uh, Jeff Atwood. I think he might have retweeted it. But basically, it's Twitch for coding. So instead of watching people game, you're watching them code and create things, whether it's a website, an app. Um, I even saw someone, and this is actually a cool tool I want to look into now. They were doing pixel art animation for some kind of like retro looking game and so he was just flipping through his animations and you know clicking little squares like you would do with pixel art and uh i just was interested in this concept of would you watch someone else code and or just watch someone else work in general and at first i was like no that's really stupid and then later i was like actually i could learn a lot by watching a professional especially if they're talking out loud about how they're thinking and how they're solving problems and so I kind of warmed up to it in the span of like ten second reaction. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm imagining like the montage of you going through the five stages of denial, but it's just over like this super <laughs> short span of time. And I mean, my my thing about this is from like a really really far away kind of viewpoint. It's anything that you would watch someone else do for entertainment is entertainment and. If your plan is to watch something like watching other people code and learn from it, like that's awesome. Like definitely learning from experts and seeing how they actually work outside of like an academic observation, but actually like, hey, I'm building this game because I'm a game developer. So just watch me work. Like, especially in the development community, that's called pair programming. Like, that's a really big thing right now in like agile, modern, hip companies. So, I think there's a, a definitely a market for this. It may be a small corner, but it's a really engaged corner. Like these are people who would probably watch this kind of stuff all the time. But then I think you even have another segment of people who are like, yeah, I'm not a developer. I don't really want to become a developer, but I'm just super fascinated by how people work or by developers because I love games. So I like to watch, you know, the it's it's the the behind the scenes version of watching, you know, like the making of for a movie that you love. Like you don't want to make movies. You just want to know more about how they made it. So I kind of wonder, like we're getting to a place where now that you can watch anybody do anything anywhere in the world live at like any time, we're kind of getting to this place where there's no clear definition of what is like sport yeah. I mean that's sort of the the periscope phenomenon or meerkat if you're if you're really special. Um the the live stream all the things is kind of like the the latest big social media thing and uh, it seems like you know the software is getting so easy to use um to to whatever's on your computer screen is easy to fling everywhere instantly and uh so it just seems like this is getting so easy that people who aren't traditionally like obviously the gamers were kind of one of the first to figure it out because the, there's enough smart nerdy gamers that are like I'm going to show myself playing, but um, now it's spreading and I guess programming is also even more nerdy than gamers in general. But um, this is spreading to like every corner of what people do. Um, one of my friends just started a, a YouTube channel. I guess it's not live stream, but it's it's all about like stuff she finds at thrift stores and as she goes through it. And um, it just seems like this is wipe, w- wiping over everything. Well, and I don't think live, I mean, live is cool because then you know it wasn't edited. You know, like you're seeing it exactly as it happened. And I think some people just enjoy that. Like 
I'm in New York, but I'm watching this thing that's happening in London right now. Like that's a cool kind of feeling if, if that's something that matters to you. Um, but I, I think, uh, something about seeing all of the underneath, like you're, you're a musician. Do you think, or, or do you know any other musicians that you could imagine them saying like, I just want to watch this musician. I really like write a song. Like, I just want a video of them sitting at the piano and trying chords and playing with lyrics and making notes and thinking out loud so I can kind of hear what's going through their head. Like, I I can't think of anything that probably wouldn't work with this. Like, I mean, unless it's yeah. something that's truly introspective and it would be really awkward to do in a performing way, there's not a whole lot where you couldn't turn a normal activity into watch me do this normal activity, not because you're necessarily trying to learn, but just because there's probably someone who would be entertained. Like, I mean, think about a cooking show. I used to, when I was a kid, I used to watch a ton of cooking shows with my father and I, I picked up nothing from it because I wasn't (laughs) trying to learn how to cook. I just enjoyed, well, I mean, I enjoyed doing something with my father no matter what it was because I was a kid, but I I enjoyed just like these people just seemed to love what they were doing. Like they were just making jokes and they were having a good time. And, you know, I come from a big Sicilian family. So food's like central to everything we do. So like just watching this incredibly relatable thing was like just fun, even though I wasn't trying to become a cook. I don't know. You think you would watch a musician write a song or, or try like some new technique on the drums or something? Absolutely. And I, and as, as much as like the quality varies widely on these because it's truly crowdsourced, every random person can do it kind of content. Um, there's definitely times where you're like, you know what? Sometimes I want to watch highly produced. I want to watch Game of Thrones. I want to watch House of Cards. And other times you're like, I just want to watch a guy beat Ninja Gaiden just straight <laughs> through. And I'm just going to sit and watch him do that. And he's going to joke and I'm going to hang out while he does it and i mean to me like watching the like twitch has been really cool just because um and even as as i dabbled with it a couple months ago i was streaming on hitbox a bit and i may get back into that um you know a lot of the fun of that is just like some of my friends would log on and it's just kind of like old times hanging out sitting on a couch you know it's like let's beat all the mario games you know we're not doing anything tonight let's just play through them and uh I, i don't find it yeah like you're saying it's not hard to bump that to any other activity that you might enjoy doing with someone and not necessarily someone you know directly um, as is clearly evidenced by the popularity of these things. Yeah. I mean, I think there'll be this huge spectrum for this kind of thing, right? Like there's going to be the people who do um, super structured, like you're learning how to cook, right? Like this is a cooking show where by the end of the cooking show, you can make the thing that I made on the cooking show. Right. But then there'll be other ones where it's just like, it's more like I'm sitting in the kitchen with you while you're cooking and we're just chatting. And that's, that's actually something I found with, with podcasting that some of the podcasts that I listen to, um, if you looked at these shows, you would be like, I didn't know you were interested in that. And I'm like, I'm not, I just really, really enjoy the hosts. Like I feel like I'm sitting, I feel like I'm sitting there with them you know, like on the couch and we're all like just drinking a cup of coffee and having a conversation, even though I'm not, I'm listening far away to a pre-recorded thing, but it just, it has this like 
the super friendly conversational feel and it, it makes it really enjoyable. Like I, that's something about podcasting that I think is really far and above beyond a lot of like highly polished radio shows. Like even though I love yeah. NPR and, and like serial and, and some of these, these polished shows, you're very, I mean, it's, it's, it's entertainment content. Like, you know, there's a story arc and whatever, or you're going to learn something or whatever, but it's, it's not conversational. Like it's just, it's different. They're both good, but they're different. And a reminder, you can tweet at us and we're very responsive. So even if it, you know, we recorded a day before, if you tweeted us while you're listening, we will probably be on our computers yes, ready to go. Very good chance of that. In fact, uh, we had some of that follow up right there at the beginning of the show. You know, I re I almost just did it. I don't know why, but when I'm, Doing this uh, like terrible, super over the top, obvious. Let me remind you of this thing. I somehow <laughs> end up doing a terrible impersonation of Peter Griffin, doing a terrible impersonation of uh, what's his name from the Honeymooners, which is just awful. Uh, like th this is a terrible <laughs> habit I have somehow built from probably years of falling asleep with Family Guy on in the background. It's just it's it's atrocious. That's soft, awkward, like, yeah, you should stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just letting it all soak in. Um, so you want to talk about these the self-driving cars first, or you want to talk about cloud gaming? Because this cloud, this cloud gaming thing kind of blew me away. I didn't actually get to see that, so... Okay, well, then I will share it with you. So this guy, and, and I linked to uh, the article where he explains in just incredible depth how he did this. But basically, and, and I don't care about his exact setup so much as I do just this idea, um, he rents time on EC2, which is Amazon's you know elastic cloud platform. Anybody can buy. This is available to any person with money. And because it's meant for like businesses running applications in the cloud, it's actually pretty cheap. So what he did was he set up this ludicrously powerful gaming computer and then he VPNs into it so that his local computer and the Amazon computer are on the same air quotes network. And then he uses the Steam in-home streaming to stream the super powerful computer playing a game <laughs> to his super slow local computer. So he actually has a YouTube video of himself playing The Witcher 3, which is a brand new like super shiny graphics kind of game on the fanless MacBook One, which is not a powerful computer. by any, but Not even close. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, the game is, you know, it's not settings maxed out, but it looks fine. Like, it even looks good. I doubt my MacBook Pro could play it this well if I was playing it locally. Yeah. How's the input latency, though? That's always my, my beef. Right. So, of course, there's going to be some. Um, not on Amazon's side. It's going to be on your side. Um, and he says, you know, if you have a good internet connection with low uh, latency or low ping, then it's going to be playable. Because I mean, The Witcher is like a semi-action game; like it's, it's not, it doesn't require like Twitch controls. But that's, you know, th this is this would allow you to play a game on the road, uh, streaming over like LTE if you wanted to get crazy. That your local computer would never be capable of playing. And like I said, this article just goes into exhaustive detail about the setup. But the part that I thought was uh, very clever of him to share in such detail was 
the cost. So he breaks down how much each portion of the uh, the EC2 setup costs him, and it works out to fifty three cents an hour. That's just I can't. Even, I'm I'm literally unable to even. Like he says, that's eighteen hundred and fifty hours of gaming for the cost of a thousand dollar gaming PC. And just for comparison, the the Sony streaming is like anywhere from two to like ten bucks for like a few days. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so I mean, this is just like. And I mean, I expect if that gets popular, me. Sorry. Oh, I was go just ahead. gonna say, like, this is not something that's really easy to set up right now, but he gives these amazing instructions. And I mean, I can imagine somebody basing a business around this like soon. Yeah, I think it's definitely coming in. I, and, you know, I'm complaining about input latency, but they will figure that out. It will get short enough to, even for action games before you know it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it. I feel like most uh, modern action games don't have the the Twitch controls that you need for like an old fashioned arcade game where, you know, a millisecond really could make the difference because the hitbox is like exactly a pixel wide. But I mean, like even the, the Batman games, which I finished Arkham city, by the way, I'm apparently way too into this. (laughs) (laughs) Even the Batman games, like when it goes into, Hey, a guy is about to punch you in the face. You should probably counterattack. There's like a tiny little slowdown to make sure you have a good opportunity because the object is not to be a fantastic video game player. The object is to feel like Batman. So if these petty thugs are constantly handing my ass to me because I only have a 10 millisecond window to hit the counterattack button, that is not Batman. That is not Batman at all. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, I streamed Uncharted to my PS Vita on vacation here over Wi-Fi, and I was just trying it out because I was curious. And it was more the the lack of consistency that bothered me, not that the like the default latency was there. I could notice, but I got used to it pretty quickly. You know, I could run around, move the camera and stuff. But it's when it would have these little hiccups every thirty seconds, where it'd be like, "Whoa, I'm going to catch up with you really fast," <laughs> and you're just like, "No, not cool." Um, that has to go away. And I mean, yeah, make the input latency as short as you can and keep improving that. But, um, consistency would go a long way to making me not feel as annoyed. Yeah. And I wonder if, uh, games. So, I mean, with my limited understanding of how streaming and networking works at a low, like close to the metal level, I presume that as this idea of, super powerful computer that lives a thousand miles away, but I want to play a, you know, a PS4 quality game on my phone. Cause I'm insane. Like games will eventually start being written and stored in such a way that streaming is more of an option, right? Because, you know, super Nintendo games and PlayStation two games and Xbox one games are not written to be played over a network, right? Like that was never even an idea they were considering. This was a local thing uh, you did yeah. on a local machine. So I can imagine that they'll start kind of weaving this sort of thinking in and they're like, okay, how can we set this up so that you can download a, a chunk of information like the maps and the textures and everything, but then the the gameplay data is what's being streamed in real time. And then I'll make it seem more like a local experience. Like I'm, I'm sure there are smart people who can figure this out if they know that that's an objective. Cause right now 
people are trying to shoehorn uh, this objective on top of this other thing that was never meant to do that. Yeah. But I do think there's a little like chicken and egg thing to it of get the gamer demand there and people will solve these problems real fast. Well, I mean, so you have the this this PlayStation streaming service. Is this something you pay for regularly? No, not often at all. It was more just a curiosity while I was on vacation. Um, I mean, if you own a single recent PlayStation device, like a Vita, a PS3, PS4, or the PlayStation TV, which is really just a Vita that you plug into the wall and your TV, um, you can access it. It's PlayStation Now. It's their Gakai-based streaming thing. But my question is, as soon as they even get the the inkling that there's an opportunity for subscription money because that's where you really cash in, right? Because you have a handful of people who just milk you, like the people who have Netflix running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Those people are really getting their $8 worth. But a lot of people who pay for Netflix probably only watch like an hour or two a day or not a day a week, you know, maybe even not that often. Maybe they just have it so that like their kids can watch kid shows, but you know, mom and dad don't even use it. So it's like those people are the people who pay, you know, to subsidize the super heavy users. And I think as yeah. soon as game companies get this idea, like, hey, um, we can get a hundred thousand people to pay us ten dollars a month every single month, even if they're not using it, it's like, oh, really? Yeah, and I would be interested in a Netflix all-you-can-eat model because I would probably play, at least at this point, RPGs and turn-based games that the latency would not really bother me, and I'm never going to purchase those games. And so it would be my way to get to a bunch. You know, it's kind of like Netflix. You watch movies you would never directly pay to rent or own in any way. You're like, oh, this random Jerry Bruckheimer (laughs) terrible action movie from the 90s. I guess I'm, you know, we're watching that tonight. And you make it five minutes into it and you go, yeah, nah. And I think uh, you and I have probably talked about this before, but there's something really weirdly visceral about like, I, I, I would pay $2 to stream this movie, but I'm not willing to pay $2 to own it because then I own it. And it's like, <laughs> but you can still only watch it once. And it's like, yeah, but then I own it. I don't know. There's like a stupid, uh, it's like a weird cognitive bias towards like, I'm I'm renting this thing temporarily or I'm owning it forever and I like sometimes I just don't want to own this thing like <laughs> I don't want it in my content library I don't want a receipt in my inbox Yeah it's it's a weird stupid quirk of you know the business model we were used to and the business model we're going to and how they overlap in some ways but not in others What's well, that perceived psychology of like you invested in it if you bought it? You're like, I part of my identity is this movie. <laughs> Whereas rental is understood as like, yeah, I don't know. Sure, why not? And it's always in the context of like there wasn't anything else to watch. Or, I know. can imagine there was a time when uh like you would walk into somebody's house and they would have, you know, their their bookshelves with their library proudly on display and and you would be like, "Oh, y- you uh you own an, a copy of Atlas Shrugged, and it's like, no, no, I'm just borrowing that. It's just my friend has been my, my exactly. friend has been pestering me to read that. It's not mine. I I, I got ten pages in. I got to give it back to him. And it's like, okay, <laughs> like you can own Atlas Shrugged. You don't have to. It's not like you agree <laughs> with everything you own. 
Like I subscribe to the philosophy of all my books. Somehow I'm a coherent person. <laughs> yeah, I think you would kind of pop like a balloon if that was true. Or you would have a really boring library. So I am <laughs> I am happy that at uh, long last you and I get to talk about self driving trucks. Yeah. So this this person, man, woman, does it matter? I don't know. Someone wrote an article that they published on Medium. And Scott, that it, it looks like a guy. So S- Scott, Scott. Uh, wrote this article on Medium about uh, self-driving trucks and how they are going to just totally screw up everything. So his basic argument is uh, there are very many communities, small communities all along major highways all throughout the country that exist exclusively to service truck drivers like and and people on long road trips, but yeah, giant truck stops. Yeah, these whole little towns that like all the restaurants are you know serviced by truck drivers. All the gas stations, their clients are all truck drivers because the whole town is only made up of like fifty people. So uh, his his point in this article, which is it's a little bit long of a read, uh, but it's a really good article because he he goes into real depth. His whole point is that if you look. Um, truck driver is actually a hyper common job in America. So if you have self-driving trucks, you have just destroyed not just the livelihood of the truck drivers, which is like, well, the, the economy is changing. You got to move on. But you've also destroyed like anybody who works in a restaurant in one of these truck stops, the people who run gas stations at these truck stops, the people who run little motels at these truck stops, like all of those businesses that are not directly related to truck drivers are you know tangentially related will now freaking collapse i do think just this broader topic of automatic cars is going to disrupt the hell out of so many things and i have some other examples from a recent podcast i heard but i want i want to keep hearing about this automated well, truck thing. so the thing so. that this made me realize is because i'm usually i'm i'm i think of myself as pretty liberal but every once in a while, I'll encounter something where I'm just like, whoa, we need the government to slow this down. And I actually think yeah. self-driving cars, like a, a consumer vehicle, would be less disruptive than a self-driving truck if this information is, in fact, accurate. Because there really isn't an entire economy based on me driving a car, right? Like I drive to the store, I drive to work or whatever. And if I'm taken by a cab or if I take the bus or if I take the train or a bike or whatever, like the store still functions because I still have to go to the store. I'm going to disagree though. And I think that makes up our episodes much better. (laughs) (laughs) I think even disrupting personal car ownership is still going to be a huge thing. Oh, it, I'm not saying that it won't be huge. I'm saying that my an entire city won't turn into a ghost town because of self-driving consumer cars like they would with these truck stops. So I I can think of several things that I mean I I don't think you're going to find these controversial, <laughs> but I do think it adds up to still a lot of things that could change so drastically. And I, I mean, I, I didn't come up with this idea. I actually heard it on a Horace to do podcast recently, and I'll, I'll try to track down the link and throw it in. But he was just talking; he was just spitballing, and it was the classic thing of you know the disruption stuff of like you don't buy a drill, you buy a hole in the wall. That's the actual thing the customer wants, 
is a hole in the wall, not necessarily a drill. Yeah, this this is that jobs to be done. Yeah, and so people want transportation. They want to get places when they want to get there. They don't necessarily want to own a car. And um, but it's not just that that could be disrupted. It's you know where are most cars at all times. Almost all the time, cars are parked, right? They're yes. barely used. And so um, even there, just the number of cars you need for society may actually be a horribly tiny fraction of what we have. Right. And I mean, this is the entire business model of like Zipcar and, and these car, not ride sharing services, but car sharing. Yeah. Um, but imagine that the biggest customer of cars is no longer normal people. It's Uber. Or, you know, one of whoever wins in the bloodbath of the next few decades. (laughs) Um, And so how does that change how cars are designed or made? Because you're servicing one company who kind of has certain economic goals with how their cars run and, you know, what comfort features matter. And yeah, maybe their users of Uber still care. Like, no, the AC sucks. Like, you need to improve that. But it's one more generation away. It's changing you know, car makers don't need TV commercials anymore. Um, it just kind of rockets through all these other areas. But then imagine if Uber's like, and I'm stealing all this from Horse to do, I want to be clear, but I just thought there were such interesting ideas to think about. Um, what if Uber's like, you know what? We don't need Toyota and Chrysler and Ford and all of them. Who cares about them? We just need factories to make a car we design. So we're going to hire the best car designers in the world, you know, one of them or one team of them. And uh, all those other car companies, we don't, who cares about their designs? We're going to make our own car. And uh, just just kind of follow this line of thinking of we only need a certain tiny percentage of cars that we currently have, and we don't need all these different companies making them. And just how quickly that just spiders out into all these other arenas. How are cities designed? Do you need as many parking garages? How are stores and malls and everything? And I don't know, I think it, it gets pretty big pretty fast. Well, and so, you know, you and I live right near uh, Denver in Colorado. And one of the things I found most attractive about the Denver metro area when I first moved to Colorado is you can get to the city very easily by train or bus, like if you're out in the suburbs where I am. And then you can get around the city very easily on foot or on a bike. Like the whole place is very bike friendly. And so when I see, you know, I'll, I'll walk past like a parking garage or something and it's like, you know, oh, it's $20 a day to park. I'm like, are you out of your fucking mind? <laughs> like it didn't cost me $20 to get here. You're going to charge me $20 to leave? Like leave wh- a giant piece of metal for a while till I'm ready to leave. And I mean, I, I get that, you know, parking garage is a large expensive structure and blah, but I mean, it's not like it doesn't have to be air conditioned or heated. Well, and it, it's all it, selling scarcity because everyone wants to get there. That's exactly it. It's entirely just selling scarcity, which is why you could design cities that didn't even have places to park cars if everybody had a self-driving car because a self-driving car would bring you to where you wanted to go and you would get out. You could then walk around or ride a bike or do whatever while you're in that like dense area and then just call a vehicle. But I mean, I could even, you could even extend that to like the suburbs. Like the neighborhood I live in is, is fairly tightly packed and I, I like this kind of design, but why would I have a driveway if I didn't have a car? Why would I yeah. have a garage? I would have a workshop that was like another room of my house. 
that would be like air conditioned and and you know maintained or just a bigger yard <laughs> yeah and any of these things like you would have those options but i can't i need a place to put my car i need a way to get my car off the road into my house like these are all things you could potentially reinvent if <laughs> if but i feel like to do the coolest stuff you would have to get like above a certain level of of saturation right like if you only had 10% driving self-driving cars you couldn't shut down all the parking garages and turn yeah. them into you know bodegas like but i think that's the the theory behind the disruption stuff is the main car makers are they're like no people want cars people buy cars people love owning cars and it's sort of that disconnect between no people love getting somewhere reliably whenever they want and that's right now owning a car is one of the best ways to do that but it doesn't have to stay that way. And But the, the problem is the car companies aren't going to be the first people to throw their weight behind that. It's going to be Uber or Google or you know someone who figures this out. Yeah, and I, I won't put you on the spot to come up with an example of this, but if you have one, please do share it with me. I wonder if there are any good examples of a company that saw that their industry was going to become either irrelevant or vastly diminished or functionally irrelevant. So they were like, you know what? We're just, we're done with that thing. And now we're going to do this other thing that's going to make us irrelevant so that we can stay a functioning business. Because you could argue in kind of a weird way, but I I think it, it holds up. Like if you're a business, your job to be done is making money, right? Like Ford's job to be done is not making cars. It's to make money. So if tomorrow Ford, well, Ford the company is, I mean, yeah, Ford all the, the companies, company. all the companies that have been around forever, eventually you can describe this as Nintendo, Disney, um, I don't know, a lot of any of the computer companies from the 70s that are still around, <laughs> Apple, I'd say, has had to, they're very much a, a almost entertainment company now in a way. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely these transitions, but I'm, I'm thinking like, I wonder, like, was there any horseshoe manufacturers who were like, ah, I'm going to start making tires for cars. We're not, we don't make horseshoes anymore. Now we make tires. We are now a tire making company. Like I just, I mean, I'm talking like a total break with the past. Cause like Apple still makes computers that in a lot of ways resemble the computers they made in the early nineties, you know, like it's still Keyboard yeah, it's a tiny fraction of their profits now, though. It's like, it's like a tiny division on the side. <laughs> yeah, I'm, no, I mean, you're that's totally true. But I would say that in Apple's case, they um, they sort of disrupted their own space. Like mobile was not eating the lunch of desktop computers. They kind of stepped in and ate their own lunch. I'm talking. Well, I'm talking about like a, yeah. a a side business. So like, in the time when horses were transportation, were there any like saddle makers who were like, "I'm going to start making leather for car seats now because nobody's going to need saddles next year." Yeah, I mean the the most common thing is a because it's so hard for an established company to disrupt themselves. What you're asking to see, it's I think it's rare. It's super rare because. It's so hard to give up your current succeeding profit thing to try the risky new thing. And that's why it's almost always someone else that comes and says, just kidding, I found the new thing. Goodbye. 
Yeah, you're, that's probably a good point. Is it'd be really hard as the the CEO of a company who has to answer to the board and who has employees that are relying on them to be like, um, what if we just sold off all of our assets and rolled the dice on number you know twenty six black? Wouldn't that be cool? Let's do that. <laughs> yeah, and I I think that's why I find the disruption theory so appealing because it has a nice explanation and maybe yeah it'll fall out of fashion. We'll find a better explanation for this business behavior, but. Um, just that there is this drift because, you know, oh, office sells amazing. So therefore people want office and, you know, you need, there's this little drift away. The company thinks it's this thing. The customer's really buying this other thing and in their minds. And the more that gets drifting away, the more there's a chance for someone else to come in and actually solve the problem the customer thinks they have. Um, the, you know, the, the phrasing they love to use is, the customer hires the product to do this. Um, and I don't know. I, I just like, you know, Microsoft eventually goes, Oh, people don't want to pay a hundred dollars for office anymore. So that's their first cue of like, Oh, you better do something or else you're going to just get swept away by something new. And you know, they're, they're trying that with subscriptions to office, but again, is it too little too late? Are they too entrenched in their monolithic office suite thinking, I don't know. Yeah, it's. I think it's. Uh, it's difficult to. I mean, this is why there's few examples of these amazing successes of giving the customer what they wanted, not what they asked for. And there's always, you know, people always trot out the the Henry Ford. If I'd asked people what faster they wanted, horse, faster yeah. horse, and I love that that story, even though I don't know if it's true. It might be uh, apocryphal, but it's it's a it's a good story. But the thing is, it is actually really hard to view the whole world and say like I know what the world needs and it's equally hard to ask someone what they want because most people don't know like and I mean I'm counting myself in that group like if somebody asked me like oh why did you buy that particular thing what problem are you trying to solve I'm like I don't know I the thing it does yeah. the thing I like the thing that it does well, I think, yeah, a lot of disruption kind of stumbled into of like a company's on some other wavelength solving something they're passionate about and it kind of just ends up actually destroying. You know, disruption is like a neutral term. It can be good or horrible, actually. It's true. Like, um, but, you know, I think a better story would be in the example Henry Ford also says, let's get a faster horse because people love horses. Let's make them faster. And the story is that some other guy just accidentally makes an engine that happens to push something. And it's like, whoa, we could move things. And then before you know it, horses are useless and we, we should use cars for this thing and i mean i feel like uber's got the chance to be that kind of company of like you know amazon's also exploring how do we get packages to people let's not rely on ups like we need to actually try other things and uh you know i would be worried if i were ups or any of these traditional shipping printing whatever companies because you're either part of this new party or you're just going to be one of the names in history yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe in a few years, UPS will mostly move like freight, you know, and no longer be shipping consumer things because small consumer items, a lot of it like DVDs and, and music and books are all digital. And then other things are 3D printed. And then other things are, you know, brought in by drone, you know, because I... Yeah, it's not just one thing. It's like, all of a sudden, you're at this weird no man's land in between everything. And you're kind of like, 
suddenly irrelevant and you didn't even see it coming because it wasn't it wasn't a better ups that came over the horizon <laughs> like four horsemen of your business apocalypse <laughs> i mean i think this is this is probably what makes running a large business like this so stressful because especially at this time in history when there's so much like attention on like this idea of disruption and and new technology and like let's do everything like better stronger faster and like if you run an old business that's like been just killing it for like decades and decades there's got to be that little part of you every night while you're lying in bed trying to fall asleep just thinking like what's going to put me out of a job tomorrow and the people who look at that as like a challenge are probably the ones who succeed because they either get in front of it or they become a part of it and the people who are just like terrified of it are the ones that become like these aging dinosaurs that are just like, nope, we're going to do things the way we've always done it because that's the only way to do it. I was just going to say another, to bring it back to the cars and trucks automated thing, um, one of the other fascinating things that Horace went on about, not to make our podcast an echo of him, but I think it informs our discussion really well, is he was talking about how owning your own mapping is going to be even more and more important because... Um, the accuracy of these things needs to get better than, you know, it, Google is already pretty amazing when you get directions. It's like within meters of where you're supposed to be. Um, but we need centimeters. We need like, we need exact real time almost mapping for some of these automated cars. And I know there's intelligent AI going on that's actually looking at the surroundings and making pathfinding decisions in these cars. But like, you can't just outsource, oh yeah, well just Tom Tom. And Garmin will give us some maps and we'll have our own automated everything service that moves robots everywhere, like which is kind of the the meta future thing that all these companies are sniffing at in different directions. Um, you really, I think you need to own that. And so that's why Google is someone to watch because they're already so deeply invested in mapping. And I think they realize this isn't just about directions for your road trip. This is about the entire future of smart computing. Yeah, and I can imagine uh, you know Google or some other company coming up with clever ways to get the devices. Well, imagine to give them some information. running your own car service. Yeah, well, <laughs> Google's Uber, Google's Car City, whatever they end up calling it, Google All Access City Play. <laughs> um, <Aww. laughs> Well, why would your Google cars just map? How about every time you take anyone anywhere for their discounted price, you're also getting the mapping data you need? Like, makes a lot of sense. They're probably already planning well, that. Well, and that, I mean, you, you took the thought right out of my brain. Like, I was thinking, you know, if you, we've talked, you and I have talked before about like micro location and like, I want my watch to know that my phone is in my hand or that my laptop is on my lap, not just that I'm in the same like, square kilometer of it you know i I want like this super (laughs) micro data because then you could do interesting stuff i'm sure there are clever ways you could get the user or consumer or whatever you want to call them to tell you if you did it right or not like but not in a super obvious way like um you could get uh you know people like on a to do a twitter hashtag where they take selfies of themselves in front of like a statue in front of this famous restaurant so it's like Every time you send someone to that famous restaurant, you pop up a little notification that's like, you know, hey, the statue that's by the main door always gets people to take selfies in front of it. You know, do you see it? It should be right in front of you. And then if the person goes over and takes a selfie, like that's an indicator that like, yep, I must have sent them to the right place. So you could probably do like, 
I mean, that's a really, really superficial example, but you could you could <laughs> probably get um, smart sensors to tell you lots of things about the world, but then there's a whole other side of like get people to also tell you about the world. Like that's like ways. I mean, yeah, but I feel like that's that's true, but it's very like on the nose. Like report that you just passed an accident on the highway for other people's safety and convenience. Well, it's also you're not moving and you're willing to give up that information on your commute. Right, exactly. So that kind of stuff, like the subtle sensor stuff, but I also want like tricky, like... False positives to get solved. Yeah, basically the exact kind of thing that people will say is like creepy for Google doing it. Like I want more of that (laughs) because... I'm actually usually okay with that stuff, so bring it on. Yeah, so, I mean, maybe we weren't really disagreeing, but I I think even just personal car ownership would have far-reaching, who knows what industries would be like, oh, shit. Well, and and just the other day, like, I, you know, because I I changed jobs not that long ago, and I'm now in a situation where we need to be a two-car family, and... I went and I got another car and like I'm I like it and I got a fine deal and I'll get a lot of use out of it and blah 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 but there's just that little part of me that was like I always had you know my my wife and I had two cars and then when we moved we were able to go down to one and I was hoping that trend would like continue in that direction like towards zero not back up to two yeah <laughs> so as cars owned approaches yeah, zero <laughs> and I mean it's you know it had to be done it's fine but I really hope all this stuff happens like in a time that I can appreciate it. Like I I don't want my grandkids to be telling me like, grandpa, what was it like when you had to drive a car? What I want to do is be like, you know, I was younger than your parents talking to my grandkids. Like I was younger than your parents when we gave up cars, like, and then nobody, nobody owned a car anymore. And so this, we've actually we've been circling this this thing I thought of that I I wanted to get your opinion on. I cannot think of another good example of this. So maybe I am super clever, or maybe my history is just terrible. But I feel like technology usually happens. You know, somebody builds or invents something or does whatever, and then society has to catch up. You've got your adopter curve. You know, the early adopters, then the late early adopters, then the middle eighty percent then your late adopters and then like your begrudging, oh, fine, I'll get a telegraph kind of people. So <laughs> you've got, I mean, this is like a very well-researched and understood adoption curve. I think self-driving cars, specifically consumer cars, not planes and trains and automobiles that are, are for like fleet purposes, but consumer cars, I think there's this very interesting thing that's happening with uh, ride-sharing because I went many uh, many months here over this last year uh, relying entirely on strangers and their cars to get me around. Now, it was still, you know, I called the car and a human being arrived at my house, but I was very comfortable with this idea of I can get somewhere by car without owning a car. And self-driving cars will also afford me that same thing but the difference this time is that the technology and the social change like the idea of not owning a car are kind of happening at the same time like i don't feel like that happens very often like with a you know the mobile revolution it's not like people were walking around saying like well as soon as the iphone comes out in five years i know what i'll do with it like that's not 
how people were thinking, but like <laughs> self-driving cars are, are a little ways off, but I already know exactly what that experience will feel like. I will lift up my arm. I will tell my watch to send a car to my house. A car will show up. I will get in it and then I will get out at my destination because I've already done that. The only difference is that yeah. there won't be another person involved that I have to make polite chit chat with. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Even ordering food these days, I'm like, do I have to interact with a human? Okay. I can just type it in. Okay. <laughs> have it arrive. <laughs> it is weird. You know, there's certain circumstances where, cause I'm, I try and I think I'm a pretty social person, but I don't like social interactions where I feel like I'm going to be pinned down so, like, interacting with, like, a server in a restaurant or a, a counter person if I go into a store, like, I don't consider that a big deal because I can just walk away if they're being, like, weird or offensive or whatever. But <laughs> if I'm in, like, an Uber or a Lyft, I, what am I going to, like, tuck and roll and, like, dive out on the highway? Like, I, I'm I'm yeah. stuck, man. So, if they're, like, a crazy person. Yeah. Socially awkward. Yeah, wah, wah. But at the same time, there is something a little bit satisfying about like I just did this the other day like my my wife and I decided we were going to get Panera and I ordered on the website and I didn't realize when you order Panera on the website they actually put your food on a special shelf and there's a special door and you go in the door the shelf is right there there's a bag with your name you take the bag and you just walk away I was, I was like, anybody could have come in here and just taken this bag of food, and I already paid for it. Or I could just lie and walk up and be like, I didn't get my food, and then they'd make me a whole second bag. And there's probably cameras, and if I did that all the time, they would catch me. But, I mean, it's there's this high level yeah. of social trust, and humans are completely cut out. Like, they prepare the food, but there's no, like, social interaction of any kind. And I kind of loved it. I kind of loved it a little bit. Yeah. Well, and we don't have to force social interaction to every corner of existence. Like, like I don't need to talk to someone while I'm putting my pants on. <laughs> and thankfully, our, the markets and the business of putting pants on has never required that. But that is, I, I feel like there's an entire uh, blog post in there about the, the markets of putting on pants. Um, but... <laughs> yeah, it is the yeah the marketable title. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you. Like this this uh, this idea of like, oh, but but you never talk to another person if everything you do is digital. I'm like, yeah, I do. I just am not talking to service people, which is not. I mean, those people also have other human interactions. It's not like if somebody who works a counter job ends up working a job in the work in the 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 storage area and they don't talk to people at the counter that they suddenly their social interactions go to zero. They just now don't talk yeah. to strangers at the counter. And I I worked a lot of counter jobs as a kid. I'll tell you, sometimes you feel pinned. Like there's somebody who just wants to tell you their life story and you're like, "I can't walk away. You have to walk away. Please walk yeah. away." That's why like never hit on your waitress. She can't oh, leave. Oh god, yeah. That's <laughs> Also paid to be nice to you. It's it's just never. It's not a good situation to have correct information about <laughs> situation. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, there are certain services or industries where like social interaction is a positive. It's a feature, but not all of them, and not by default. And I think that's why. Yeah, picking up my food. I don't need a smile and a here you go. I can just pick yeah, up my food. Agreed, especially. 
you know, people are like, well, I want to see the people who made my food. And it's like, where are you going where the person who rings up your order is also the chef? Like, you almost never see the person yeah. who actually did the work. You just see the person who did the job that, unfortunately, can be easily replaced by a machine. So it's like, I mean, the economic <laughs> and social implications of totally destroying this entire part of the economy aside, there's no real benefit to the customer <laughs> of having this interaction, right? I mean, there's no, like, it's not like, oh, well, I looked him in the eye, so he's definitely not going to spit in my soup. Like, the guy who is going to spit in your soup never saw you. He's in the back in the kitchen. You know, it's a totally, it's it's this, this mental model that you had this hands-on interaction, but you didn't. It was already completely separate. If I go into a footlocker, the guy who helps me try on shoes didn't make the shoes, that was some terrible yeah. war-torn country on the other side of the planet. Which, uh, I mean, I know this speaks more to me being a weirdo, but I, I was near a footlocker. I say that like I'm approaching. A, like <laughs> you, you are now predator. approaching footlocker. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, th- there was no one else in the store except the employee, and I was like, nah. Because <laughs> even just the that that my mood that day was like even just the hey can I help you find anything no I'm good I'm just gonna browse don't bother me um, even that was just like nah I don't feel like it I'm just not gonna look at <laughs> so, shoes <laughs> I'll tell you I there's a part of me that wants to be like yeah Mike you're weird but I don't think you are I think that was that's actually even with the most social people I think that feeling of like I just don't want to talk to anybody right now I think is a super common thing so you know like less social people feel that way more often, more social people feel that way less often, but not never. I mean, I think that's just a normal human way. And yeah. the way I've actually uh, learned to deal with that is, especially like if I'm in a mall and like, you know, I'm with somebody and they're shopping for something and I'm just trying to kill time. If somebody walks up to me in a store and they're like, oh, can I help you find anything? I honestly just tell them like, nah, man, I'm here with my wife. I'm here with my friend. I'm just killing time. Like, I'm not going to buy anything. No, I, I do that too. But even in, in this particular morning, it's like I don't even feel like doing that. I'm just not going to go in. If other people are in there, and then I'm just chancing that one of the employees comes over and asks me, that's like it feel, it's like less risk. Like oh, there's ten other people that probably actually have questions. They're going to tie them up. I can look at shoes and then leave. Um, but I mean, I've even done it in the Best Buy, or like you know, they are like it might be a loss prevention strategy, but they kind of follow you, and and every department you go into, someone will ask you. And I'm like, there's like four different employees have asked me. I'm not a thief. Can we just drop? Yeah, the it's definitely <laughs> loss prevention. I I remember from my retail days, they're like, never let anybody into the store without making eye contact and saying hello, because I mean, the research is there. Like the 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 theft rate just plummets. When I enter the store, but like I stepped into a new zone, so I'm like newly a potential thief. Well, yeah, it's like uh, you know you you entered a new area. There was a brief loading screen. Those people have no idea who you are. These NPCs have to interact with you because you, <laughs> hi, I'm a server. Well, hi, I'm a best Mike, buy. You are the hero <laughs> of your own story, and these people are just NPCs in your hero's journey. Sorry, everyone who works in retail uh. everywhere. <laughs> I don't blame the employees. It's it's they're 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 asked to do this, we, but we are forced to do it at gunpoint. It's terrible. So I'm gonna. You think I think you're ready to wrap it up? I think we had a good talk. So you can find the show notes for this episode at sunriserobot.net slash flipping table slash seventy five, which 
Is there any, aside from the fact that we're three quarters of the way to 100, is there any cool number stuff for 75? You got something? 15 times five. Okay. That's, I'll take, I'll take it. It's more than I was able to come up with. Um, Mike, you said it earlier, but you and I both do genuinely love feedback. We try super hard to respond to anybody who tweets at us, uh, either with hashtag flipping tables or tweeted us directly. Um, I'm at Lions in beta and you are at Medwards Music. Uh, if you like the show, instead of just listening in the sad web player, you should subscribe like a hip modern person. Uh, I still use Pocket Casts on, uh, on mobile, and I actually I started using Pocket Casts on the web. So I'll be up front. You do have to pay for the web. It's a one-time fee. It's like a different application fee, but it's super slick. It's really fast. It's just like their mobile app. And sometimes I want to listen through headphones that aren't plugged into the thing in my pocket. It's nice sitting at a desk everything syncs it's it's really slick and and doesn't overcast i think you still use overcast don't they have a web player too yeah um and they're they're good guy gregs they don't steal traffic they have direct links to the original website it's all good above board (laughs) so yeah i'm subscribing is the way to go because then you get free episodes delivered into your ear holes every single week and uh, if you want to support us a little more directly than subscribing, we do have a Patreon at patreon.com slash sunrise robot. And depending on the level you support at, you may actually get your name shouted out at the end of Flipping Tables or at the end of all of our shows. So with that in mind, we'd like to thank our super ultra diamond self-driving car level supporters, Bruce Edwards, Matt Mariner, Sean Byrne, and Andreas Longo. We love you guys. We could not do this without you. Hearts all around. We'll see you next week.